So good morning. So by faith, Moses lost the fleeting pleasures of his day uh, because he believed in something more. Uh, So he lost in that day in order to win in the future. Uh, I thought Mike did a great job of leading us to kind of think this way as we approach faith. We sing our hope is in Jesus. So what this means for us is in just everyday life is that this faith we have, it is a belief that compels us to think beyond today. Beyond just our present circumstances. And we do this in all kinds of subtle ways. I was thinking just of the other pastors on our team. Uh, Mike just got back from Asia. Do you think he's just there because he likes just hanging out in Asia? Like, I've been where he's been. I, I, it's, it's not, it wouldn't be my preference. You think he just enjoys being away from his family? Why do you think he does such a thing? He is compelled by faith. There's something more. You've got pastors like Gene who wish him a happy birthday, by the way. I'll let him tell you how old he is. But it's up there. You've got guys like Gene who've faithfully given to this church. I don't mean just in regular ties. I mean over and above has just faithfully model generosity. You say, why does he do that? Does he do that because he has to? Because there's some legalistic standard? No. Because he's compelled by faith that there's something more than just the possessions of this world. There are people like David and Jeremy who serve our church as lay pastors, lay elders. There's no illusion of this being their job. They don't make any money for doing that. And yet they give hours of their time. So why do they do that? Because they just want to? They're compelled by faith that there's something bigger, more substantial. Some of you guys are here on fall break. It's the first weekend of your kids' fall break, and you decided, I'm going to stick around and go to church Sunday, and then we're off somewhere. Did you do that because you have to, because there's some legalistic thing? No, you just did that because by faith, you wanted to gather with the body and make much of Jesus. See, we who are in the faith make these types of decisions all the time. It's one of the most broken thoughts behind that idea that kind of circles around us, this false teaching that wants to use freedom as an excuse that I don't have to. When you're reading through these things in Hebrews 11, understand a lot of these things weren't like have-to situations. These are things in which they want to, they are compelled to by the very word of God to pursue hope that is in Jesus. It's faith. You know, it's funny, I'm on sabbatical right now. And I keep seeing people, and and by the way, you guys are incredibly generous and kind, and thank you for your love that would give your pastors a season of margin to work on things that would just be hard to do in the day-to-day. But I see people, and they're like, why are you here? Where do you think I would be? This is my church. 
This is my family. I mean, I want you to imagine either the unhealth on your part as a church or my part as a pastor if I can't rest among you. The, the, the greatest example of that is imagine a husband who looks to his wife and kids and say, guys, I'm really tired and I need some rest. So I'm going to go like live in California for the next two months and then I'll come back. Does that sound healthy to you? If that, if that person can't rest... Oh, it may sound, somebody like, it sounds awesome. I'm not saying that. <laughs> if you can't rest in that home, then there's something unhealthy in that home or there's something unhealthy in you. I'm so thankful that you are a church. Love your pastors and your leaders enough to give plurality, to allow us the freedom of that, to not be so selfish in your needs that you can balance that. And I long to be that kind of pastor. I want to rest among you, worship among you. Like, my sabbatical is not just a vacation. I'm not out doing whatever I want through that. It's not just rest. You say, why? Because the elders, like, oversee it? No. Our elders are wise. They don't make it some legalistic thing. They just say, this is time. Go. But I can't just not serve or use my gifts for two months. I can't just check out. Why? Because I'm compelled by my job? No. But I'm compelled by faith. There's something more important than me vacationing for a whole time. And so even in this season to be able, um, for you to pray that just that have the margin and the space to be in the word. I'm looking forward into Ephesians and Philippians. That's what we're studying next year as a church. You say, why do those things? We all do that stuff who are in the faith. Why? Because we recognize that there is something more. There is something greater than the present circumstance and the fleeting desires of our flesh in this world. And we're seeing that as we read through Hebrews 11. Now, like I said, it's fall break. I probably got some kids in the room. Any kids like marshmallows? Anybody like marshmallows? A few of you? I know. There's been, there's been some candy innovation since the marshmallows came out. I get it. One of the most famous experiments, kids, is called the marshmallow experiment. And this guy, his name was Michelle. He's back at the University of Stanford. I think this is like late 60s, okay? And he started this experiment where he took a marshmallow and he brought in these kids. They were four and five years old. And he put a marshmallow on the table in front of them, and this was the deal. I'm going to leave. I'll be gone for 15 minutes. You can eat this marshmallow now or any time in that 15 minutes. But if I come back and you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. So it was a test on restraint. Delayed gratification. If the kid waits, they get two. They eat it, they just get the one. And so they leave and, man, it just they've repeated this you can watch videos of this on YouTube kids are awesome they're like you know some of them hide under the table so they don't have to see the marshmallow other ones are like staring at it they'll pick it up and smell it some lick it some try to be like cheaters you know they eat all but like a little bitty spot and put it back because they're like it's still there and then some just wait one kid famously just went to sleep and they ask him why did you go to sleep he's like I knew if I stayed awake I wasn't going to be able to make it And so they watch these kids struggle with 
self-restraint. But any of you guys a little older remember Paul Harvey, the rest of the story is they came behind and did follow-up experiments on those kids. And in the testing, about half ate the marshmallow and about half waited. And years later, through multiple follow-up studies, do you know what they found out? The kids who chose to delay gratification, who were able to wait for the second marshmallow, they had higher SAT scores. They had better responses to stress. They were healthier, less likely to be obese. They had better social skills. They had lower substance abuse. They lived healthier, just more successful lives. And to this day, that test, this idea of delaying gratification is one of the greatest markers for predicting general success in kids all these years later. I love this quote that came out of the study. It says, success usually comes down to choosing the pain of discipline over the ease of distraction. That's exactly what delayed gratification is all about. But did these kids just naturally have more self-discipline? Or was it somehow developed? How did it come to be? Why did this group do this and the other group not? And so years later, the University of Rochester decided they're going to come back behind it and they're going to just give a little bit of a twist to the study. They're going to change it up a little bit. And they divided the kids into two groups. Different set of kids, same test, two groups. The first group they spent the lead-up time facilitating what they call unreliable experiences. What's that mean? They made promises and then did not deliver. They told the kids, hey, if you do this, we'll give you crayons. If you do this, we'll give you stickers. Kids did those things. They didn't give them the crayons or the stickers. The second group, they set up reliable experiences. When they did those things, they gave them the crayons. They gave them the stickers. You know what happened? The kids who were in unreliable settings where promises were not delivered, they ate that marshmallow. They doubted a second marshmallow would come. They doubted their discipline to wait, and they just ate it because it's the one in front of them. Meanwhile, the kids that were influenced by delivered promises you know what they did? They trusted the second marshmallow would come. They had realized that they had the discipline to do a thing and get a reward for thing. They waited. There's a lot of good just common sense stuff in this research for learning and discipline and parenting. Why am I sharing it with you today? Listen, because our world is unreliable. And I don't have to ask you if you have been on the other side of broken promises. I know you have. It's the world we live in. And so it's not really in our nature to trust in something beyond ourselves, beyond the present. We're tempted to just enjoy the marshmallow now because who knows 
what might happen next. But see, as the church, there is an answer to that rhetorical question. Who knows? It's not you. It's not me. As the author of Hebrews has been unpacking, it's not the Levitical priest, but the creator, God, who has made himself known in his son Jesus. And so chapter 11 begins and he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, looked for, the conviction of things not seen, redeemed life in Jesus. Faith is confident trust in Jesus expressed in submission and devotion and endurance. This is illustrated in Moses' life. We looked at this last week, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. See, Moses chose to lose the fleeting pleasures in the present for the eternal treasures not yet delivered. See, faith looks to Jesus and waits Waits until it gets hard? No. Waits until the losses are just to a certain point? No. It looks to Jesus and waits. Listen to the parallel Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This will make so much sense as we set up Hebrews 11. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's that mean, patience? Meaning we wait with full assurance, not shrinking back in fear, but confidently trusting our hope to be delivered. We know it will be. And we know it's not comparable to any suffering in this present age. So for this reason, the author of Hebrews is saying, the end of chapter 10, do not shrink back indoor. Look to Jesus. And he's given us these examples through chapter 11. And we're seeing things in these examples, these illustrations. We've seen that faith in Jesus brings obedience. It brings action discipline, radical trust that changed the way they lived. They didn't just live reasonably in the present through faith. They did things that were just wild in obedience, radical. Faith in Jesus brings deliverance. Our faith brings reward, redemption, life, salvation. Faith in Jesus will not put us to shame. 
And Jesus has always been and will be the source of our deliverance. And so don't shrink back, endure, consider him. We're seeing these examples, and I don't know about you, but as I read through them, I cannot help but think of the definition of faith that this presents back to us, that we might see and consider what authentic faith in Jesus looks like. And so we pick up in verse 32. The author says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back They're dead by resurrection. Let's pause there for just a minute. He says, what more shall I say? If you've been studying along with us through Hebrews all year, he's been unpacking this incredible argument that God has made himself known in Jesus, who is our better hope. The evidence is now on the table. We're reaching the point where the issue isn't the evidence, the issue is a heart issue. Have you ever noticed that with people? You know, sometimes early on it can just be a discernment issue. They don't either have the experience or whatever to really see the truth. And over time, more and more evidence just stacks on the table. And it becomes more and more obvious. And at a certain point, it's just there. And yet, they still are unrepentant in their mind, unwilling to turn to the truth that is right in front of them. And they'll give all kinds of kind of rationale and reason around rejecting the truth that's in front of them. But at the end of the day, it's not really an evidence issue anymore. It's not really a discernment issue anymore. It's a heart issue. We've seen that play out, and here the author of Hebrews has been making this argument that Jesus is the better hope, and it's not some new truth just for today. It has been true through the Old Testament. And he's saying, time would fail me. I don't even have time to go into detail about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David, Samuel, the prophets. By the way, all these are messy people through faith, did great things, wild things. I mean, Barak had a military victory over uh, Sisera. Samson, we're aware of his victory over the Philistines. There's Jephthah, who had victory over the Ammonites. And, of course, we know about Samuel and David. I want to give you one just so you can capture the idea. The author is writing to a Hebrew audience who would know all these stories. They would know them well. For us, sometimes we forget. Consider Gideon, by the way. 
Gideon's in chapter 7 of Judges. Also in your notes on the app or on the website, you'll see a list of every person mentioned in chapter 11 with the cross-reference where you can go back and read about them in the Old Testament. Check that out. Go study that later this week. But in Judges chapter 7, the Bible's talking to us about Gideon, and Gideon's life is crazy messy. All right, and most of us, when I think we think of Gideon, we think about the fleece and like just kind of the doubt associated with that or some of the mess ups later in his life. But I want to make sure you catch this story of faith. I think it's helpful for us. Gideon is about to lead an army to fight against the Midianites and we'll say some of their friends. There are a lot of Midianites. In Judges chapter 7, verse 12, it says the Midianites and uh, the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number. Is the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. In other places in scripture where we get these references and we get people, it's usually like maybe 60,000 or 100,000. It's a lot of people. And Gideon has an army of 32,000 ready to go fight. They are greatly outnumbered. And the Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Tell anyone who's afraid to go home. And 22,000 left. Now there's 10,000. And the Lord said, that's still too many. Tell them to go get a drink. And they all go down, they get a drink. And some of you remember the Bible story. 300 men lapped up water. And God says, take the 300 and tell everybody else, go home. Now you're ready to go to war. Israel circles their camp with 300 and they blew trumpets and broke jars and made a bunch of noise and the enemy of thousands panicked, fought one another, killed one another and fled. Now be careful for just a minute. The author's emphasis is not the improbable victory. The improbable victories are just illustrations. They're the outcome that demonstrate God's sovereign authority and power, who in Jesus is the source of our faith. And he goes on and he's talking about these things. And he says in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are wowing illustrations of great and improbable success. Battles were won. Promised land was settled. Giants were defeated. Fire did not burn. Lions did not kill. The author is saying, see, Israel's success 
has always came through faith. It was never about themselves. It was faith in something more. Faith brought obedience. Faith brought life-changing, repentant action. Faith brought deliverance. He was more like, yeah. Personalize it for just a minute. If one of those 300 was your 18-year-old son, what would your advice be? And you're about to watch 300 go against thousands. Do you compromise in fear? Do you obey the word of the Lord? It's not just Gideon. Israel was this way. They crossed the river and now in enemy territory. At this time, God says, circumcise every male in your camp, which just left them vulnerable for days. I've always read that and be like, man, that would have been so great if you would have told us to do that on the other side of the river kind of thing. What a test of faith. What about the walls of Jericho where your military strategy is we're going to walk around the city for seven days and then go, ah, French peas with slushies throwing at us. If you know, you know. There's David, a boy who's only on the battlefield because he brought cheese. He's there because he's bringing them cheese. And he's like, I got my slingshot, let's go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow their knee. Do you compromise in fear? Excuse yourself out? Or do you obey the word of the Lord in faith that there is something bigger than the circumstance of your day? We do if we know Jesus in faith. Faith brings deliverance. This is why Joshua at the end of the conquest in Joshua 23 says, it is the Lord your God who fought for you. One of you put to flight a thousand. Why? Because you were strong? Because you were mighty? No, because God fought for you. These examples so far in chapter 11 have shown us that faith brings obedience and faith brings deliverance, but these have been examples that really show incredible outcomes in those circumstances. So when does the deliverance come? When will we measure success? Our big truth this morning, faith in Jesus brings endurance. Not only does faith in Jesus lead us to trust in his promises to be delivered, it leads us to endure with full assurance, with conviction, as Paul wrote, with patience. Trusting 
And again, to this point, our, our examples, our illustrations of faith have resulted in pictures of earthly deliverance. But the author isn't speaking to that. And contextually, if you've been following along, you can pick up on that. In other words, these earthly things like the priesthood of Levi are temporary. And he's calling his reader and pointing them to a deliverance of the soul. Of something that is eternal. Not something so fleeting that is tied to this broken life. Rather a redeemed life. And so he goes on and he makes this so clear beginning in verse 35. Some of these faithful were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens caves of the earth you realize Moses never had the riches or comfort he left behind in Egypt again he never built a home in the promised land see we like the stories of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego but what about Jeremiah who all his friends turned their back on him who spent his whole ministry pointing people to the one true God. No one really converts. What about Ezekiel, whose life is so hard as a faithful prophet? And to make an illustration of Jerusalem's fall, his wife dies. The Bible says it was the apple of his eye. What about John the Baptist or Stephen or Paul? What about Jesus? Are these just unfortunate losers? No, rather through faith they are delivered to something more, greater, beyond self or today. It's not worth comparing to what lies ahead. See, the author is saying, consider of the faith, the faith of these who looked forward to Jesus. Verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The Messiah, Jesus, had not yet established a new covenant. And yet, they looked forward with hope for deliverance, in faith, for something that they would not experience in their life. They trusted what was promised despite not experiencing it. They trusted who promised despite not seeing him. See, our hope has always been in Jesus. It's always been beyond ourselves in this kingdom. So do not shrink back. Look to him. Die to self 
and live by faith in Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Faith in Jesus brings endurance. Five quick big ideas, okay? We're going to go through them really fast. Implications. First, Faith in Jesus leads us to hope in God's promise. Faith lives according to the hope found in a new covenant. Hope is not sourced in our present. If your hope is in the circumstances of your life, who is your hope in? That's why Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 13, and says, Brothers, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Second big idea, faith in Jesus leads us to expect suffering. Faith identifies us with Jesus. It identifies us with Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not asking Jesus into your heart. You know, it's not in the Bible anywhere. Just going to say this to you. I want to make sure you understand. There's a way you can say it, and it makes sense, but I need to make sure you get something about faith. It's not just asking Jesus to come into your heart. Faith in Jesus is death to self and life in him. Faith in Jesus is treason. It's treason. It sets us at war with the kingdom of this day. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all of them will be persecuted. Say, I don't know. Let me just read some verses to you. Matthew chapter 10. This is all Jesus. He says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but... Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
What shall a man give in return for his soul? And so Jesus, praying for his disciples before he's crucified in John 17, says this, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What about the teaching of Scripture leads you to think, to expect ease, comfort, peace, What about these verses leads you to think you'll be the popular one? You will get the promotion. That you will be embraced. Does not the teaching of Scripture teach us that if we live in faith, we should expect suffering? We see this around us in so many ways. So many everyday situations. Greatest employers around us, Ballad, Eastman, they prop up our culture, but they also tell you if you work there, you better celebrate sin. They don't tell you, hey, be respectful. No, they say celebrate. And we compromise and we tell ourselves, it's someone else's job. Why? What, I mean, could we do? We're just 300. We'll never win over the 50,000. God wants me to be happy, not a martyr. Stephen should have just kept his mouth shut. Faith looks different than that. It looks different than that. Third, faith in Jesus leads us to persevere through suffering. Faith holds it does not shrink back why because the cost in this kingdom does not compare to the life that is in Jesus we know consequences are coming but as we read in Romans chapter 8 Paul says I consider the suffering of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for faith And Jesus leads us to live a life of repentance. Faith turns to obedience, to Christ's likeness, to life. Faith puts on the fruit of the Spirit and puts off the old flesh. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 22. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Authentic faith lives life in Jesus. 
it looks past the circumstances and the losses of today and acknowledges in the kingdom that is ahead, that is promised, there's life. And it does not compare with the losses of today. Jesus says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And, you know, as we go through this, we don't have a lot of time, but just understand the gospel is death to self, life in Jesus. The illusion of a prosperity gospel that if I follow God, he wants to just bless me with all these earthly fleeting pleasures, it does not hold against the pages of scripture. And while we may be quick to point out the prosperity gospel of some extreme, ridiculous, false teacher who's trying to save up money to buy a jet, in our own life there are subtle ideologies of this. God who wants me to feel happy. And so we'll justify our homosexual desire. We'll justify our divorce. God wants me to be rested, refreshed. We'll prioritize ourselves. God wants me to be a mama bear and idolize safety. God wants me to be a provider and we'll idolize money. God wants me to affirm my friends and my family and we'll idolize comfort. And God wants me to keep a good reputation and we'll idolize image and pride. Church, listen, Jesus suffered He suffered. If God allowed his own son, who is perfect, to suffer, what lie are you believing that he will not call you and I in Christ's likeness to suffer? Great theologian once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be like the death of Luther who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Final big idea as the team comes up, faith in Jesus leads us to look to Jesus. Faith is confident trust, not in our faith, not in our works, but who he is, Jesus. The assured hope that he will deliver us from death into life. The certain conviction that he is God. That he is worthy of our trust and our life. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 writes, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. Consider the examples in chapter 11, your definition for what that looks like. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand 
the throne of God. I ask you to bow your head and go to a time of response in prayer. While we were sinners, God loved us. He has made himself known to us through his son who has paid the penalty for our sin that through faith in him we might live. Not in the broken circumstances of this world but with him and his likeness through his holiness and his kingdom forever. As a joint heir, as a brother and sister, life. If you're here this morning and there's never been a moment in time where you made a profession of faith, that cried out from the broken circumstances of your world and said, there is no hope here. Death to self. Jesus, you are God and my life is in you. I pray that this would be the moment you would choose to live faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have, May the conviction of the Spirit continue to break us and conform us more and more into the image of Christ-likeness. May it not be said of us, oh, you of little faith, but may our faith compel us to live different. As we sing a time of response, if you need to talk to someone, right out these doors to the left, the area called the hub, there are counselors who would love to talk with you. But church, let us sing. And let us praise Jesus, our Savior and our God.